one Friday in December 1974, a guy called David McAllister kidnapped 10-year-old Chris Carter, Carrier, sorry, on his way home from school. He took him out into the Florida Everglades where he stabbed him with an ice pick, burned him with cigarettes, shot him in the head and left him to die. But miraculously, six days later, Chris was actually found alive, confused, blind, in one eye, but without any brain damage because the bullet actually passed behind his eyes and came out his other temple. And so over the next few years, Chris, as he recovered, he struggled with incredible anxiety. Most nights he woke up terrified, thinking that someone was coming to get him. But then when he was 13, he was transformed at a church youth group when he found hope and security in God. And he went on to become the youth pastor in that church. It's a remarkable story of, the, of God's power to rescue and to heal and to restore. But the story didn't end there. 22 years later, long after the statute of limitations had, had run out on that crime, the now 77-year-old David McAllister confessed to his crime. He had never been caught, he'd never been uh, prosecuted for this crime. But he confessed. He was now living in a nursing home, frail and blind, with no friends or family to visit him. And the police informed Chris about this confession. And that's when the most remarkable thing happened. Chris visited McAllister, but not to attack him or to punish him, but rather to offer him forgiveness. And from then on, Chris visited David McAllister regularly. They read the Bible together. They prayed together. And eventually, McAllister put his faith in Jesus. He later told reporters that Chris was the best friend he ever had. And then when McAllister died, it was Chris who made the funeral arrangements. And it was Chris who was the only one who turned up at his funeral to pay his respects. It's an amazing story of forgiveness. One that powerfully demonstrates the outrageous grace of God. Grace that can even rescue someone like David McAllister who committed such a dreadful crime. And this was the grace that King David experienced. As we saw last time, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers. But then he heard that Bathsheba was pregnant, and so he tried to cover up by bringing Uriah back from the battle, her husband. But when that failed, he sent Uriah back with a letter, a sealed letter, arranging for Uriah to be killed in battle. David then married Bathsheba and claimed the son as his own. He committed adultery and murder and for a whole year it seemed that he'd gotten away with it. But that failure 
would have destroyed David's life and his relationship with God. And so in love, God stepped into this situation with outrageous grace. And this is really good news for us as well. Because we too need that grace in our lives. We too need God's help to overcome the giant of failure. So we're going to read from Second Samuel chapter 12. And Treve is going to come up and he's going to read to Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 to verse 14. Sent to Nathan, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town. That's not right. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then David said, Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this hadn't been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. 
Thank you very much, Retrieve, for doing a reading this morning. Nathan told a story to David. It's about two men. One man was so poor that he owned just one little lamb. But he loved and cared for it so that it was like a daughter to him. But the other man was so rich that he owned, had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But despite this, when a visitor came to this rich man's house, he didn't provide hospitality out of his vast resources. Instead, he took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. It was a cruel act of selfishness and greed. An abuse of power. And the the height of hypocrisy. As he played the part of a generous host while robbing the poor. And David was outraged when he heard it. Like most people, he had a really strong sense of right and wrong, especially when it came to other people. And so with righteous indignation, he declared, the man who did this deserves to die. And it was then that Nathan declared those words that must have shook David to the core. You are the man. David was that cruel, rich man. God had given David so many blessings. He had anointed him as king. He had protected him from King Saul when he was trying to kill him. He had established him as ruler of his people. And he had given him so much wealth and many wives. And God said, if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. But instead of being filled with the deepest sense of gratitude for all that God had given him, David had abused his power. He'd stolen Uriah's wife and Uriah's life. And then he covered it all up with the hypocrisy of a marriage built on deceit and lies. No wonder Nathan said to David, why do you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. Nathan, through that story, had held up the mirror of God's word to David. He confronted him with the wickedness of his own actions. He'd shown him the true sinfulness of his sin. It must have taken a lot of courage for Nathan to do that. I think for most of us, it's very difficult and uncomfortable for us to confront anybody with their sin. But how much harder must it have been for Nathan to confront somebody who could have just ordered his execution? But Nathan here wasn't acting alone. We read in verse 1 that the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is why Nathan went. This is why he said what he said. 
He was acting as God's prophet. He was declaring God's word. This was God confronting David. But it was motivated by grace and love. That's because if we are going to overcome the giant of failure in our lives, our sin needs to be confronted. Our natural inclination is to hide our sin. To minimize it. To justify it. To excuse it. To redefine it. To forget it. To blame others for it. To cover it up with hypocrisy and deception. But if we do that, then our sin will mess up our lives. Listen to what David said about when he did this in his own life. In Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Unconfronted sin wears us out. It pulls us down. It drains our energy. It hardens our heart. It burdens our minds with guilt. And ultimately, it separates us from God. And so in love, God works to confront us with our sin. Because it needs to be brought up into the open for it to be dealt with. This is one of the the vital ministries of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. But it's also one of the vital ministries of God's people. One of the vital ministries of us as a body of believers. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6 and 1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Of course, we're not called to be going around judging everybody else for all the wrong things they've done. That's not what Paul's talking about here. But if we are going to overcome the giant of failure in our lives, then we need people like Nathan. We need people who will be willing to confront us with the sin in our lives. To help us to see our sinfulness. So that we can be restored. So Nathan confronted David's sin. But what was crucial was how David responded to that confrontation. Look at verse 13 of our reading. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. David could have attacked Nathan for what he said. He could have argued with him. He could have ignored him. But instead he listened to God's word and he confessed his sin. 
And he did it without trying to excuse it. He didn't blame Bathsheba for it. Or the pressures of his position. Or an issue in his life. Or anything like that. He simply said that he had sinned. In Psalm 51, which he wrote at that time, David said to God, you are proved right when you speak. You are justified when you judge. David admitted that his actions were wrong and that God was just when he condemned him for them. And that's what confession is. It is accepting that before a holy God we have no excuse, no mitigating factors, no one else to blame. That we just simply say that we are wrong, God, for what we've done. That we accept our responsibility for those actions. But we also need to recognise that our sin is serious. And that's because it's ultimately it's against God. Do you see what, what David said here in verse 13? I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, David had sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he had sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Yes, he had sinned against the people by abusing his, his position, his role. But the true seriousness of his sin was that it was first and foremost rebellion against God. He said in Psalm 51 again, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That wasn't David trying to to minimise his sin. That wasn't trying trying to get off the hook for what he'd done to, to others. It was because hurting other people is terrible. But this, this, because of the supreme value of God, the worst aspect of sin is it's against Him. It's an attack against God. It's, it's an offence against the One who is worthy of all of the praise and all of the glory and all of the honour and all of our love. And folks, that's what we're all guilty of this morning. We're not here to point the finger at other people in their sin. We need to be willing to confess our sin before God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the seriousness of sin. That's what we're all guilty of. That's what we all need to confess before God. That each of us stand guilty before a holy God. But in that psalm, David didn't only confess his sin. He also prayed for it to be covered. This is what he said in Psalm 51 verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Like deleting the record of that crime. He also said in verse 2, Wash away all my iniquity 
like washing dirt out of clothes. Again, in verse 2 he said, cleanse me from my sin. Like a priest, how he would perform a purification ritual within the Jewish system. David in that psalm asked for nothing less than full, complete, total forgiveness. He wanted to be able to know that he stood before God, clean, righteous. That's not all. David also asked for complete transformation. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And create a steadfast spirit within me. David longed for a new beginning with a new heart, a new spirit. One that was committed to God. Then he asked to be accepted into God's presence. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. That probably was such a real fear for David because he'd seen that happen in Saul's life when Saul disobeyed God and the Spirit departed from him. And then David asked for renewed joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He'd been burdened with guilt, but now he wanted to experience the freedom and the joy of knowing that he was right with God. Forgiveness, transformation, acceptance, joy. That's an incredible request from someone who was guilty of such a horrendous crime. And David knew that he didn't didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He could never earn it. He could never work for it. He could never pay it back. At the start of the psalm, verse 1 in Psalm 51, he said this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. This was a request for God's grace. His unmerited, undeserved love. And incredibly, this is what David received. We read it in verse 13. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Despite the depth of his sin, God took it away and he rescued him from the death sentence that he deserved. I don't think David knew fully how that was was possible. How could God be, be a just, holy God and yet cover over David's sin? I don't think David understood how that was possible. But we do, don't we? This is because of the atoning, the the covering sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Because it was at the cross that God made him, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that we could become 
the righteousness of God. This is how David could be forgiven. This is why he could experience a heart transformation. Why he could be welcomed into God's presence. Why he could receive the joy of his salvation. It was because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself David's sin. And he paid for it in full. David didn't die that day because Jesus died in his place. David was forgiven because Jesus was condemned. And folks, we can experience that same gift today. Because in of ourselves, we stand guilty before a holy God. We too have sinned against God in our actions, in our words, in our attitudes and thoughts. We too deserve death. We too deserve to be separated from God forever. But if we put our trust in Jesus, then we can be completely forgiven. We can be made new in Christ. We can be welcomed into God's presence as His children. We can receive the joy of His salvation. And it's all because the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. From all sin. It doesn't matter how bad we think we are, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, purifies us today. If we accept that through faith in Him. God's grace is truly amazing. It overcame David's failure and it restored him into relationship with himself. But of course we need to mention the fact that that didn't mean that all of the consequences of David's sin were taken away. There were three very serious consequences mentioned in our reading. Look at verse 10. God said, The sword shall never depart from your house, David. David had used violence to get rid of Uriah. Now that violence would continue in his family. God also said, Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. David had stolen somebody else's wife in secret. Now David would experience what that was like, but in public in full view of everybody else, that happened when Absalom, his son, rebelled against them and slept with his wives on the rooftop of his house. And then God said, verse 14, the son born to you will die. This little child was innocent. And yet he suffered the consequence of his father's sin. Think Many of us will struggle when we read that. It challenges us. It goes against the grain. We, we really struggle to get our heads around that. I certainly do. But it seems that God knew that that was essential for God's people. 
They had to see the consequences of that sin to understand the seriousness of it. I think David understood this to some extent as well. In fact, some people think that God here was accepting the sentence that David had pronounced on that rich man in the story that Nathan had told. Do you see what he says in verse 6? He must pay for that lamb four times over. That's what the law said. About if somebody stole a sheep, then they had to pay compensation four times over. And in a sense, that's what David paid. Four of David's sons died as a consequence of David's actions. And David seemed to accept this. We don't have time to go into the rest of the chapter, but when this little baby got ill, David prayed and he fasted. But when the baby died, he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. He accepted that God had done what was right. So it's a principle that we need to remember, that we need to understand. God Do not be deceived, Paul says in Galatians 6 and 7. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In his grace, God often allows us to experience the consequences of our actions so that we can learn from them about the seriousness of our sin. So we don't continue to go down that path further and further away from God. It can be really painful lessons to learn. But they're essential if we're going to learn how to overcome the failures of our lives. So David's failure did have disastrous consequences on his family. But it didn't have the last word. David and Bathsheba had another child. They named him Solomon. But it says in verse 25 of Second Samuel chapter 12, because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name this child Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. And when this child grew up, He was the one who succeeded David as king. David deserved to lose his throne and his future dynasty. But God's grace overcame. God kept his promise to David that I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. That promise that was about Solomon but it also pointed forward beyond that to Jesus himself who would be the son of David who would sit on David's throne and reign forever. That's the wonderful reality of God's grace. This is the ultimate reason why we can overcome that giant of failure in our lives. Because even when we fail, God's promises do not. 
as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. When we mess up, when we stumble, when we make mistakes, when we walk away, God is always going to be faithful to his promises. We can trust in him. David's life was certainly impacted by this failure. And it is a solemn warning against rebelling against God's rule and reign in our lives. But because of God's amazing grace, it didn't have the last word in David's life. So today, no matter what we've done, no matter how big our sin seems in our eyes, no matter how many times we've failed, we can overcome that giant of failure in our lives. <coughs> if we confront our sin and confess it to God, then even then through Jesus, our failures, our sins can be covered over. And even although they might have serious consequences in our lives, they will not have the last word. Because even our failures don't cancel God's promises.